We're trying to mainstream the awareness that caring for God's creation is a religious value. It's not something that you know only environmentalists are responsible for. I'm Mitch. And I'm Missy. We're co-workers. He's the boss, and we're married. And she's the boss. Together, we host Good Faith Weekly, a podcast on faith and culture. What could possibly go wrong? Tune in and find out. Missy. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Missy and I are going to catch up, then talk about the latest current events. And then later on the pod, Missy and I got to sit down with a rabbi who lives in Jerusalem. Rabbi Yonatan Narel is the founder and executive director of the Interfaith Center for Sustainable Development. And we just had a wonderful conversation with him talking about creation, care, and climate change. And you will not want to miss our conversation with the rabbi. So it's going to be a good episode. Stay tuned. Missy, how are you today? I'm nervous. Why? I mean, this is your fourth time. I mean, we got through the third episode. Oh, we did. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I think uh, over the last three weeks, I've received so much encouragement and texts from friends and family who have listened and saying how much they've enjoyed it, which at first just made me feel so proud and humbled. And then I realized... I think I know why they're listening. Why is that? They know. It's only a matter of time before something comes out of my mouth. And there's a train wreck about to happen. Yeah, so, it, 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 folks, if you get really quiet right now, wherever you are, you can hear the train whistle a-blowing coming down the tracks. It's going to happen, folks. <laughs> I have a habit of putting my foot in my mouth. Mitch says all the time. Say it in your head first. I'm not very good at that. So um, I don't know why, but yes, I'm feeling very nervous today, but it's, it's good. I had a chat with my doctor about it. <laughs> she's going to help me out. Oh, man. We are sending that doctor uh, to vacation places Something that she can like only that. imagine. Something like that. If nothing else, I hope I'm entertaining for her. We'll see. <laughs> uh, well, I'm glad you're back for your fourth episode. Uh, it's uh, been a lot of fun. Uh, we're back from New Orleans. We are. I'm feeling very cultured right now. I know. Uh, you and I got to attend the 125th anniversary of Lot Gary, uh, which is a traditionally African-American mission organization. It was a great time. We are very inspired by the speakers and the music and the sermons. Uh, it was just a, a great experience overall. So what, what was your major takeaway after coming out of that meeting? My major takeaway is just wishing that everyone could be in all of these spaces that we, you know, are in and hearing from challenging and inspiring speakers of different perspectives, of different backgrounds. Um, it, it just, I don't know how to put into words. It's kind of like that old, for those of you who went to youth camp, you know, you come back from that and on this emotional <laughs> high, but it's yeah. a little different. It's right. a little bit more intellectual. And um, I've just really enjoyed being able to be in that space. And, and it was a wonderful conference. I've got many, many notes on my phone. I was just telling you before we started recording that the, that there are other things I want to talk about as we go forward um, in the coming weeks. Yeah. 
And as great as the conference was, as inspirational as it was, I have a feeling that your favorite moment may have occurred the day after the conference concluded on a rainy day on this on Bourbon Street. It did. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about what happened you that day. You didn't warn me about this because I feel like we should give, um, where yeah. was that? Was the Fetzel? Fritzels. Oh, um, Fritzels. Fritzels European yeah. Jazz Club. We popped in. It was about to rain and thought we, we needed hydrating. <laughs> yes, we'll, we'll yes. It's that. very, very hot in and, New Orleans. <laughs> and there was a piano player, singer there named, oh, oh shoot. I'll put it in the show notes, yeah, you guys. Let me get my notes and hand write that down real quick. Um, anyways, and he was asking for a request. He was playing all the old favorites. He was great. And um, I had one request, and I never had the courage to ask for it, even though we were, you know, half a dozen people in there. It wasn't like a big crowd. Um, and so I never asked, and I chickened out after each song. <laughs> and then he said, okay, if there's no more requests, I'm going to play my final song. And within three notes, I realized he was playing my one request and I just got teary. Yeah, you did. Yeah, I did. It was I'll Fly Away, which yeah. I know probably theologically it's not sound, but I don't care. And yeah. It was amazing and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was a great time. So, well, I'm glad to be back home. Uh, we've got lots going on uh, in the news this week. Um, I published an article yesterday at goodfaithmedia.org talking about the latest trend and uh, rise of public schools banning books and removing books from shelves. And this is happening all across the country. In fact, uh, there's an organization, a nonprofit called PEN America, a nonprofit advocacy group, reported to the Washington Times recently that, I'm sorry, Washington Post recently, that uh, last year, Books that were removed from libraries were up 250%. And a vast, vast majority, in fact, I would almost guarantee that almost 99.9% .9 of these books deal with two subjects. One, about LGBTQ, or LGBT, <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Got alphabet uh, there. Uh, LGBTQ plus uh, individuals, uh, transgender kids, uh, same-sex relationships, and then the second is uh, dealing with racism or black perspectives, and all of them are dealing with those two subjects that are being pulled off the shelves. Okay, before we get into this too deep, because I know you're about to go on a rant slash sermon, <laughs> and if I've learned nothing else in 26 years of being married to you, um, every good sermon has to start with an illustration. Okay, so give us an illustration. <laughs> Are you nervous right I now? Kind of, I am a little bit nervous. <laughs> you seem a little twitchy. Yeah. So I'm going to enter the confessional. Okay. There was um, a time in which I tried to censor a book in our home. Which book was this, <laughs> Melissa? <laughs> I'm just enjoying you getting nervous right now. So when our children were little, um, I went to Barnes & Noble when they were preschool one day and planted myself in the children's section and was determined to find a book about the birds and the bees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so very scientific. Right. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I was 
going to be very pro. We communicate with our kids. I mean, we had been to that point. We're going to be honest about everything and and not hide things. And so I found a book by um, a woman named... Hang on, folks. Can you hear the train whistle getting a little closer? (laughs) Lori Krasny Brown, and you may not know that name, Mm -hmm. but you know her husband. I do. Mark Brown. Really? Arthur. Yes. Sweet Arthur. Yeah. Okay. So I bought this book thinking this will be great. It was mm-hmm. very age appropriate. Um, it, it was just a very good body awareness book, but it, it did kind of go into the sex talk a little bit. So go home. And then I proceed. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. To, to cut it up. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> And I blacked out a word uh-huh. in the book that I don't like. Uh-huh. It's not a bad word. Yeah. Just a word I don't like. Sure. My boys still give me a hard time about this today. <laughs> um, and then I let, you know, we read it with our son. And that book in all its cut up glory is still in my closet because I want to remember my shame. <laughs> so uh. basically, I um, thought it's, it's wonderful to share this information with him to be open and honest about our bodies, about relationships to a point. There were conversations I, I didn't want to have because it made me uncomfortable. Um, not because it wasn't developmentally appropriate. It was very developmentally appropriate, but, um, because of my discomfort with the subject, I kept that part from him. Um, and I want to say fast forward a couple of years or a few years and a church member slash chaplain, professional chaplain, <laughs> recommended or okayed a movie to us. Yes, I remember this very clearly. Blades of Glory. <laughs> <laughs> if you guys don't remember it or haven't seen it, just trust that there are a lot of movies your kids will see that innuendo goes over their head. This one, it will not. No, it will slap them in the face. It slaps them in the face. <laughs> and so later at that night after watching the movie, he comes into our room and just asks, <laughs> point blank, what is sex? Uh-huh. And so we had a conversation. I, the end of that story is even better. I'll save it for later. Um, but my point being in this whole censorship thing is that my attempt at censoring something from our kid did not keep him from getting information. I got the information <laughs> from a movie, a funny movie, albeit, right. but um, it it kind of, it could have been presented a different way. I could have taken the lead on it and had an uncomfortable conversation, even though it was a conversation I didn't necessarily feel at ease with. Um, I I tried to keep that, censored in our in our home at least for the time being and it and it sort of backfired in ultimately a, a pretty big way so yeah anyways there's my sermon illustration now you can take well it. if if you know if we were catholic i would have you go do you know three or four hell marys but since we're baptist it's three or four shots oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, no th- i mean this is a rising trend it's always been around a uh, Book burners, book banners, uh, they have always been around, but it has significantly increased over the last few years, beginning with the pandemic. And our public schools have always been a target for privatizers and people who would like to instill their quote-unquote Christian values upon the rest of society. But it has gotten a lot worse since the pandemic. It began with the politicization 
of uh, mask wearing and the closing of schools. Parents were saying that their rights, uh, their children's rights, their rights were being infringed upon because people were trying to stop this uh, global pandemic in its tracks. They fought parents, they fought, or they fought teachers, they fought administrators. It continued to get worse, and then it moved into uh, the racial justice conversations that were uh, spurred on by the death of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and uh, others. And there was accusations leveled against educators that CRT was somehow being taught in public schools. There's not one instance where CRT has ever been taught in public schools because that is a college-level type of philosophy that's taught in law school primarily, but it has never been taught in public schools. What has been taught in public schools has been history. And that is what parents are upset about. So in this last week, our town that we currently live in has once again made national news. Not only that, but the town we used to live in (laughs) made national news. Maybe there's something sort of connection. Right. Maybe we need to look at the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So both uh, Keller Independent School District in Texas, in Texas, and Norman uh, School District here where we live now have both made national news. Our children both started in Keller Independent School District and ended up both graduating from Norman Public Schools. They, we had a fantastic experience in, in both places, had wonderful teachers. Um, it, it really saddens me to, to see what has happened this last week. Um, but I'll let you kind of talk to that because we have independently and collectively both been contacted by uh, educators within our community just very panic-stricken over what is happening in our state. Yeah, not, I mean, not only panic-stricken, but really fearful for their safety because some of these educators have been threatened uh, with with violence uh, because of books that are on library shelves all across the country. Let's begin with uh, the situation in Keller, Texas. Keller Independent School District removed all the books that parents and students challenged one day before school started. Titles included books such as The Bible, the Bluest Eyes by Toni Morrison, who is a, uh, a, a laureate, a national laureate, a past laureate, and a novel adaptation of Anne Frank's The Diary of a Young Girl. Parents challenged these last year over the summer, and so the school district's response to that was to remove them off of the shelf. Again, these primarily the Bible is an interesting to, uh I don't think it's that the, interesting at all. If you read it, it's probably the most inappropriate book yeah, on the well, shelf. And yeah. if you don't believe me, you ask any 17-year-old that's, preacher's kid. That's true. <laughs> they will show you where all of the inappropriate verses are. That's exactly right. Um, the Keller decision was uh, inspired by the latest uh, policy that was released by the Texas Education Agency after the Republican governor, Greg Abbott, directed the agency to develop a statewide standard for books in public school libraries. 
they uh, they decided that these books, as they were being challenged, no longer needed to be on the shelves until there was a review on them, and so they they pulled them, causing all kinds of turmoil in the school district. They had a meeting this past week, and uh, the local ABC affiliate down there uh, was there to cover it. Keller High School senior Cameron Munt told the school board this week, the fact is that marginalized students in Keller ISD feel attacked by the school board because, again, all of these books are are primarily dealing with LGBTQ plus issues as well as uh, racism. Something he said, you will all, y'all, what y'all don't understand is that this basic censorship is much more than politics. It's about lives. And they are devaluing the personhood of these students by removing these books. And it's just, it's, it's whole, it's, really a shame. And before you think, it's just a bunch of parents who, you know, are eager about this. No, this is a concerted effort to take over public schools. And if you can't destroy them, then you take them over. They've been trying to destroy them for a long time to privatize them. And since they cannot destroy them, they're going to try to take them over. There's a group in Texas, a company by the name of it's a, uh, a cell phone company called Patriot Mobile. It's a Texas-based cell phone company that donates a portion of its customer phone bills to Christian causes. And get this, in local elections in Tarrant County, where Keller is located, as well as Fort Worth, this, this company's political action committee, Patriot Mobile Action, raised over a half a million dollars for K- Keller ISD candidates and other candidates in Tarrant County so that they could implement these policies uh, district-wide. And they are succeeding. They are taking over local school districts and they're taking over local governments, uh, city governments. And this is a concerted effort to take the country over by utilizing these scare tactics and these this fear mongering and it is it is really terrifying to think about well not only or are they wanting to control what is available to students you know to control the narrative as we talked about a couple of weeks ago but like you said if if you can't just get rid of public education with a swipe of a pen, what you can do is you can just completely handcuff teachers from being able to do their job. Mm-hmm. And this is in part what that does and what we can talk about in a moment, what is happening in our community is that teachers are basically being forced to close their classroom library libraries because of the policies set in place, the approval process for each and every book that is in their classroom. Um, and because it's... it's so insurmountable to, to do this task, they're just having to close it down. So basically, if you want to, you know, claim the narrative that public schools are failing, so let's just shut them down. Well, you do that by not enabling teachers to do their job. Right. And we know phenomenal people, both in Keller ISD and in Norman ISD, who are incredible teachers. But they can only do so much when you continue to take and take and take from them. Um, and so that's what's so frustrating is that even I feel like even in the administration level, there are people who genuinely do not agree with these policies and want to um, see teachers be able to succeed and have access to materials to teach their students. But the school district is also being held captive and it, it 
feels like in our school district, what we're hearing is the teachers feel like they're a little bit thrown in front of the bus. Like they don't have any sort of representation or support um, because of the way that Norman has chosen to write policy and to implement um, this law, this law that we have, this House Bill, what is it, seven, seventeen seventy five, mm-hmm. that is is so vague, it doesn't really outline guidelines, and so school districts are scrambling to try to figure out what to do. Yeah, in the case here in, in Oklahoma and Norman, uh, more specifically, uh, a teacher gave out a QR code to the Brooklyn Public Library's uh, site, Books Unbanned. And because she gave out that QR code, they said that she was in violation of that House bill. And there's some debate whether she was fired or she was suspended, but she's claiming that she was dismissed uh, from Norman Public Schools because she dared to uh, give information to students about banned books. Now think about that for a second, Missy. I can't, I mean... It's just baffling to me. I mean, this is stuff you read about in history books. This is what you read in Nazi Germany. This is what you read in the old Soviet Union. Anytime there's an authoritarian or totalitarian type of government that tries to rise up within a community or a country, this is what they do. They start to burn books and to discourage learning and education as much as they can. Where does this stop? Because a lot of the pushback on some of these books, especially dealing with racism and systemic racism, is that, well, our children are feeling bad because they have these certain beliefs or because they're uh, of uh, Anglo descent or that we don't agree in same-sex relationships. Um, and so they're saying our, our children are made to feel inadequate because of that. Well, what's going to happen next? Are we going to start banning the biography of Jackie Robinson, of uh, Jesse Owens, of you know the incredible you know Harriet Tubman, uh, these great figures in history who had to fight against the system mm-hmm. in order to gain their rights or to abolish slavery or to break the law as Harriet Tubman did to get people out of the South on the, um, the underground railroad. Where does this stop? The thing is just because you're hiding something doesn't mean it didn't exist. Right. And in today's, in this day and age, especially attempting to hide something is not going to ultimately be very successful. Um, because we have access to information, you're just making it very difficult for teachers to do their job. Um, unfortunately, I mean, it, it's clearly successful. I mean, yeah. like you said, these organizations that are kind of just quietly dumping money into school board elections, into city council races, and th- that's where these changes are, are being made and being seen and being so deeply felt um, in the actual classroom where your child is sitting. And I just don't know how I would feel right now if I had a child, um, you know, still in school. Yeah. I want to conclude this part of our conversation by quoting Republican president and World War II hero, Dwight D. Eisenhower. Eisenhower said this, don't join the book burners. Don't think you're going to conceal faults by concealing evidence that they never existed. Don't be afraid to go to your library and read every book. That's a good word. 
It is. So, so folks, uh, fight all of these book bans, this anti-education, anti-inclusivity, uh, because it's sending our country and our communities down a road that none of us really want to go down. Shifting gears here, uh, you and I sat down with an incredible rabbi this week talking about creation care and environmental sustainability. Our guest next is going to be Rabbi Yonatan Narrell. It's got a great interview, so you don't want to miss it. Hey, listeners, check us out online at goodfaithmedia.org and follow us on social at gfmedia.org. We'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. I'm new here and could really use the feedback, but only if it's glowing. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got a very special guest with us all the way from Jerusalem, Israel. Rabbi Yanatan Narel is the founder and executive director of the Interface Center for Sustainable Development. Yanatan holds a MA and BA from Stanford University, focusing on global environmental issues and received rabbinical ordination in Israel. Yanatan is co-author of the best-selling book, Eco Bible, which shines new light on how the Hebrew Bible and great religious thinkers have urged human care and stewardship of nature. He has spoken internationally on religion and the environment, including at the UN Environmental Assembly and the Parliament of World Religions. He is the lead author of three books on Jewish environmental ethics and also co-authored three reports on faith and ecology courses in theological education. He lives with his wife and two children in Jerusalem. Rabbi, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Thank you. It's great to be here with you. Rabbi, I was looking at your website in preparation for this interview, and I, I find your work fascinating. And I, it's um, the center is called the Interfaith Center for Sustainable, Sustainable Development. And I was wondering if you could share with our listeners a little bit about the mission and how, um, how this was formed. Our mission is to reveal the connection between religion and ecology and mobilize people to act. I founded the organization 12 years ago. Here and we're based in Jerusalem. I, I did. I founded it because many people think that religion is one thing and environmental sustainability is another thing. And if I were to ask, uh, you know, a common uh, religious adherent, tell me something from your religion that relates to how we can care for God's planet and God's creation. So, you know, some people would be a little challenged to, to respond to that. And, and so we're trying to mainstream the awareness that caring for God's creation is a religious value. Uh, it's not uh, something that, you know, only environmentalists are responsible for, but that uh, based on, on deep-seated religious teachings, uh, we have an obligation to care for and protect God's creation. So how do you think, I'm, I'm sitting here going back to my upbringing and childhood in, in a faith-based arena, and, and how as small children, a lot of what you're taught in um, you know, Protestantism is um, in Sunday school, as we call it, is about God's creation. That's kind of our foundation in, in the church. And I think somewhere along the way that gets disconnected from our faith in our, in my experience, why do you think that is, or how do you think that is that all of a sudden we find ourselves in um, a situation where 
it's almost antithetical to people who are faith-based to also care for the environment. It seems like there's a tension between these two um, ways of thinking. How, how does that split, do you think, happen? It's a great question. I think part of it has to do with uh, the training of clergy and uh, religious school teachers. My organization has been involved uh, in what we call ecologically informed theological education over the past 10 years or so. Most clergy in the world, whether they're Christian or Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist or Jewish, most clergy, when they go for theological education, caring for God's creation isn't a central part of it. Uh, Most clergy are, are learning about theology, liturgy, uh, history of their religion, and many other topics, also learning languages, whether it's uh, Hebrew, Aramaic, Latin, Greek. And this, the topic of, 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 of sustainability is, is just not part of it. So most clergy leave their formation periods, and they haven't even had one, a one-hour lecture about this topic of, of connecting their religion to ecological sustainability. And therefore, when they go and and teach and preach in their congregation, um, most of them don't actually talk about this issue. It's sort of like a non-issue. And so part of the work that my organization has been doing has been trying to uh, encourage formation programs, theological schools, to engage on this issue and to make it part of their uh, training. Um, I've also been encouraging uh, people who go to to church or, or synagogue uh, to encourage their clergy to talk about this issue and to say, look, this is something that's important to me, and I want to hear more about it from, from you, the clergy member, um, especially if the clergy doesn't talk about it. What Missy seems to be alluding to, at least from my perspective, is that we have evolved into a very uh, consumer-based society where we look at things as resources and products to use and to disregard. But when you read ancient text, whether it's the Hebrew Bible or other ancient text, there seems to be a spirit and attitude of sustainability, such as rotating crops and caring for people and your neighbor in a very benevolent way. How much do you think that Western culture has diminished the theology and ideology of sustainability as we read it in ancient text. That's part of the reason why I uh, co-authored EcoBible, which is an ecological commentary on uh, the five books of Moses on the Pentateuch. Because when I was studying in Jewish seminary here in Israel over the course of seven years, I came to see that ancient commentaries by rabbis on the Hebrew Bible related a lot to, to issues of ecological sustainability. And, and these rabbis were living, you know, 2,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 500 years ago. They were living in pre-modern and pre-industrial societies. And in those societies, the, their worldview seemed to be different than the modern consumerist worldview. Um, last week I was in Sinai. Uh, I was on a trip to prepare an interfaith event on Mount Sinai. And I visited uh, Santa Caterina Monastery, which is the the oldest monastery in the world. It's an Orthodox monastery um, and also the oldest continually in use library in the world. 
Bibles, wow. where I gave them a copy of Eco Bible. And, you know, there out in the desert, uh, it was, you know, the, the, the awareness of nature and sort of being connected to nature cycle cycles was something that they took for granted. Uh, I saw the Milky Way uh, when I went stargazing one night. In a, in a way, I've never seen it. This band of 500 billion stars in the middle of the sky. Mm. It, was, uh, it was truly amazing. And, and I think that, that that awareness has been lost on us moderns. Um, I think part of it has to do with urbanization, that most people in the world now live in cities and don't necessarily have such a connection to nature. And I think, as, as you mentioned, part of it has to do with consumer society, that many people find their pleasure satisfaction in consuming things uh, instead of through spirituality and family and community. Do you also think that we have lost our humanity in this process uh, of becoming more of a consumeristic society? And what I mean by that, that lo- losing our humanity, is that being human means that we are, f- we are part of an ecological system, and a-, a created being within a created environment. And we only look at the earth as, as again, I said a moment ago, as a resource to be consumed. Um, do you think that we see ourselves outside the environment instead of being a part of the environment? Yes, I, I think that uh, there has emerged uh, what I may call an excessive anthropocentrism, that the human as the center of the world. Uh, and in, according to Jewish teaching, uh, one, one view of why God created the human being last among all the species is so that we would have humility mm. and that we would realize that, well, God created other things before us. So, you know, people like to uh, quote Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, that God said uh, to the human being, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and conquer it and dominate the animals and the fish and the birds. Uh, but in rabbinic tradition, that, that, those verses are understood in, in a very different way. Uh, some of the rabbis talk about the juxtaposition of that verse with uh, how God said that the human being is created in the image and likeness of God. And only if we act in the image and likeness of God are we given dominion over creation, which is different than domination. Mm. Uh, but if we act in a, in a brutal or a arrogant way, then we are taken down and the animals rule over us. And we see with the coronavirus pandemic that this tiny virus uh, seems to be ruling over people. And, and so, you know, and it's a, it's a zoonotic disease that came from animals. Um, so, you know, we have, it, it's important, uh, I believe, for humanity to be humble. And I believe that humility is actually one of the spiritual solutions to the ecological crisis. Well said. What would you advise, what can we do that's tangible to feel like we are making an impact and um, respecting our, our earth? Well, in terms of, of making an impact sort of at a personal level, you know, one of the things is, um, is airplane travel. Airplanes are a very effective way of depositing carbon in the atmosphere because most of the fuel that they burn is, stays in the atmosphere and, it's, and that carbon dioxide stays for 100 years. So if you know, a person wants to reduce their ecological footprint or their carbon footprint, then you know, reducing airplane travel is, is one way to do it. Um, and, you know, and there's a lot of local things to see in one's own 
county and state. A person doesn't have to, you know, run to the Bahamas on an airplane to to see something beautiful and to have a nice vacation. Um, and then a second aspect I would say relates to eating meat and especially red meat. Uh, cows are uh, they have this amazing ability to eat grass and uh, subsist on grass, and they do that because they have multiple stomachs, uh, and, and those multiple stomachs mean that they they produce a lot of methane. Uh, and methane is actually 16 times stronger than carbon dioxide in causing the greenhouse effect, which is heating the planet. So when we eat beef or dairy, cow dairy, then uh, we are contributing to the production of methane through these these cows, uh, and so one way to another way to reduce one's ecological footprint would be to reduce the the amount of meat and dairy that a person consumes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I mean, reading through your website, you guys got a lot of projects going on there at uh, interfaithsustain.com. One of those you've already mentioned, and that is the Eco Bible Project. Just for our listeners' sake, you, what is the Eco Bible, and how people can gain access to it? Eco Bible is is a commentary on the Pentateuch, on Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And it's a, it's a commentary that draws on thousands of years of rabbinic wisdom uh, together with ecological science. And so we've written a commentary on 400 verses in the Pentateuch, and, and, and it's ecological commentary. So, for example, what I mentioned about Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, and, you know, and, and, and the reason behind why we did this is because, as I said earlier, many people, they look at the Bible and they say, well, there's nothing ecological in here. And yet, when, when, when we see it through the eyes of, uh, of ancient rabbinic commentary, we actually can see that there is, there's much wisdom that relates to our current crisis that we can draw on in order to live more sustainably. And we also include action items uh, at the end of each section as a way of connecting the theology with practical actions, uh, and and this is and and and, so, and, in a, and I'll mention one other aspect of this that we've been working with a Lutheran pastor uh, based in Kentucky for the uh, Reverend Shade for the past year, uh, and uh, have been developing a monthly article, a two-page resource called Eco Preacher which is based on eco-bible, but it's intended for Christian pastors and Christian lay people uh, in order to encourage the teaching and preaching on ecology according to the lectionary reading of that Sunday. So this is an additional resource that we've developed specifically for Christians in order to try to, to encourage this. And, and hundreds of Christian pastors have been are receiving this on a monthly basis. And that's exactly how I ran across your work, is I was doing research on an article that I published at Good Faith Media uh, a couple of months ago entitled, The Heat is On, It's Time to Declare a Climate Emergency. And I found the article in the Louisville uh, Courier-Journal about your work with uh, this Christian minister at, I think she's a professor at Lexington Theological Seminary. And it was just fascinating to me that you're bringing uh, not only the Abrahamic faith, but also all people of faith who have a deep concern for our environment and its sustainability. So uh, well done, sir. Well done. (laughs) I think just bringing the attention to the fact that this is not an either or, this is not a separate issue that as people of faith, as part of creation, this is our responsibility. And somehow 
I don't know um, how we got off track and thinking it's separate things. Like you said, the younger generation is more concerned with ecology than theology. The ecological crisis is not just about nature. It's not, it's not, it's not just about climate change and fossil fuels and CO2 emissions, or it's not just about the birds and the bees, the trees and the toads. It's about how we live as spiritual beings in a physical reality. The, the ecological crisis has certain spiritual roots, among them arrogance, short-term thinking, uh, egoism, and uh, having our pleasure, desire in the physical and, and consumer behavior. Mm-hmm. And the ecological crisis has spiritual solutions. Those include humility, long-term thinking, caring for other people and other creatures, and finding the source of our pleasure in spirituality, community, and family. Our current consumer society operates at a low level of soul awareness. And according to Kabbalistic or Jewish mystical teachings, a human being has many levels of soul awareness, even 25 levels. And so, they, so therefore, you know, being attracted to a, you know, a, a big cheeseburger um, that's, 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 that's sort of at a low level of soul awareness because it's not healthy for a person and the person might get a stomach ache afterward, mm-hmm. but in the immediate moment it tastes good uh, and it's not good for, for the planet. Uh, but as we raise our level of spiritual awareness, we're going to have, we're going to essentially reach these spiritual solutions. We're going to become more humble. We're going to care more for God's creatures and for other people. We're going to think more long-term. We're gonna, and, and we're gonna see that, that we can satisfy our pleasure desire through spirituality, and and not not just through physicality. I love that. We were also noticing that you, um, there are seminars and tours that that you provide, and can you tell us a little bit about that? How can people learn more? How can people participate? Sure. So I, I just led an, a faith-based ecological walking tour in Jerusalem with a group of Christian students uh, from Switzerland. Uh, and then yesterday, I, I we, my organization did an interfaith panel that brought together a, uh, a Palestinian pastor and a religious Muslim woman and myself speaking about religion and ecological sustainability here in Jerusalem. Um, we also lead food tours in Israel's largest food market, which is based in Jerusalem, called the Machane Huda Market. We look at that from a faith-based ecological angle. I mean, you're starting to get a sense of, you know, sort of where my head is, yeah, sure. uh, which is connecting religion and ecology. And so we do that through Eco Bible. We do that through the Eco Preacher resource for Christian pastors. And then we do that through faith, faith-based ecological tourism in the Holy Land. Yeah, you can find all that at uh, interfaithsustained.com. Rabbi, thank you so much for joining us at Good Faith Weekly. Uh, we really applaud your work. Uh, for our listeners, uh, check out uh, the rabbi's website and their group, interfaithsustained.com. It is certainly worth your time. And get the Eco Bible. It is a, a great resource to have in your library. Well, Rabbi, before we let you go, we always ask our guest one last question, and Missy has the honor of asking it. So, Missy, take it away. As you know, our tagline at Good Faith Media is, there's more to tell. In light of your work and all we've discussed today, what is your more to tell? Well, I would just share something that my daughter asked me recently here in Jerusalem during a heat wave. She said, why is it so hot? 
and it and it reminds me of a story that uh, the Nobel laureate Toni Morrison told of a young boy who came to an elder woman with a bird in his hands, and he said to the woman, "Can you tell me whether the bird in my hand is alive or dead?" And she thought to herself, and she realized that the boy was playing a trick on her, because if she said that the bird was dead, the boy would open his hands and the bird would fly away and she would be wrong. And if she said that the bird was alive, he would close his hands and crush the bird and she'd be wrong again. He had her coming and going. So she thought to herself for a minute and she said to the young boy, I don't know whether the bird is alive or dead. All I know is that the life of the bird is in your hands. And that's true today for all of us. Each of us has power. Each of us has the ability to, to live at, as sustainable and God-aware a life as possible. And I bless us that we should manifest that uh, with the help of our family, our friends, and with God's help. Rabbi Yonatan Narell, thank you so much for being our guest this week. We really enjoyed our conversation. You've been listening to Good Faith Weekly, hosted by Mitch and Missy Randall. This weekly podcast from Good Faith Media discusses matters of faith and culture. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast and give us a like and a glowing review. We produce the podcast out of Norman, Oklahoma. Our music comes from Pond 5. And we're supported by listeners like you. Learn more about us at goodfaithmedia.org.